All right, well, we have a very special guest uh, with us this morning who will be uh, speaking, and, and so I want to introduce you to Andrew Lazo. Andrew is the English teacher uh, at Houston Christian uh, High School. He's a friend of Michelle's and a friend of Bob from our, our first service. He is a C.S. Lewis scholar uh, and has done a lot of interesting work with C.S. Lewis, and so I know a lot of us are familiar with C.S. Lewis. We uh, use his quotes and, and read his books and things of that nature. And so uh, we're very privileged this morning to be able to hear from Andrew. And so this moment, I'm going to interrupt. Give him an FCQ. Welcome. Hey, good morning. Morning, morning. morning. Uh, forgive me for not wearing jeans. <laughs> I was here for the earlier service, and so, you know, Bob White was there, and you got to fit in with Bob and Sarah Jane. Um, I do come from Houston Christian. It's my first year here, just like Michelle, and it's just been such a delight to get to know her. Man, I envy you the, uh, the chance to, to hang out with her every day. My sermon this morning is called Cheerful Insecurity, Living in the Hope of Heaven. And as I begin, uh, let me pray. Father, I thank you for these good people. I thank you for Mike and his shepherding of them. I pray that you will plant deep and prosper well anything that comes from anything I have to say that is from your word and from your spirit. And Lord, by your spirit, you will blow away anything that uh, doesn't help uh, grow this good, this good congregation. We ask your blessing upon these words, upon our lives, and we ask you to keep us mindful of our soon and coming home, heaven, through Christ our Lord. Amen. In John 16.33, our Lord issues us a rather grim promise. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. That's right, Jesus promises us trouble. The gospel version of your best life now <laughs> appears from this passage anyway to point to the fact that we shall face problems, fairly sizable problems, and that we shall face them with the kind of wearying consistency that will cause us all to lose who is enough to make even the most optimistic of us despair of the hope of humanity. <laughs> I didn't even talk about Jersey Shore. We will have trouble, Jesus promises us. It took me years to realize that when Jesus, in John 10.10, 10, promises to come to give us life and to give it more abundantly, that this abundance often can mean an abundance of discomfort, of sickness, of grief and pain. But this passage also promises that we shall somehow find courage to face these things. In fact, it promises us more than that, for Jesus tells us to take heart. Our own attitudes and internal actions can offer a powerful and healthy antidote to the trouble of the world that surrounds us. We can, we must take heart in this world where we will have trouble. In a key passage, C.S. Lewis echoes this sentiment in a way that quite clearly helps us to see how to live the hope of heaven in our everyday worlds. He says to one correspondent, I have been feeling very much lately that cheerful insecurity is what our Lord asks of us. Let's fix this, this idea in our minds. Cheerful insecurity. Having trouble, yet taking heart. What does that mean for us today? Well, I have some good news and some bad news. 
Now, I'm a school teacher. Whenever I tell my students that I have good news and bad news, they invariably demand the bad news first. And so that's how we'll proceed this morning. There is bad news. We have good cause to feel insecure. Every day we live in the crucial tension of knowing ourselves to be eternal beings stranded in time. Do you find this true in your own life? Does time ever creep? Does time ever fly? I just had a week off for vacation and had a list way longer than my week and tomorrow is school again. Time doesn't seem to move linearly in my, lo- in my life. When I have to do something loathsome and difficult like, you know, I don't know, sitting through a sermon, <laughs> time often creeps. Lewis says that time shifts like that because we were not made in time or for time. We are eternal creatures stranded in time, and so time fits us badly like a poorly made suit of clothes. Does this make sense? Make no mistake, while we are creatures made for God's glory, we are nevertheless trapped in a fallen world where people pull apart, where fog on the freeway just east of here destroys a day set aside to give thanks. This is a place wherein we live where natural disasters wipe out long-held livelihoods, a place where we must resort to an iron dome to protect a people longing to live at peace with rockets falling all around. Egypt just now seems to be sinking before our eyes once again into dictatorial madness in the name of security. In this world, we do indeed have trouble. And here, closer to to home, you need only go online or turn on the news to find ferocious riots breaking out over the chance to buy Christmas presents. Did you see the appalling footage from Walmart? Just ponder that for a second. People clawing and fighting and screaming in order to be the first one to buy someone a gift in honor of the birthday of the Prince of Peace. You have to wonder, after watching the riots, why they dare call them smartphones they were fighting for. I didn't see anybody smart there. Is it any wonder that people often ask of us, how can a God of love allow such things? How indeed, we might reply, we have good cause to feel insecure. Houston, we have many problems, just like Jesus told us we would. It brings me a great comfort to know that C.S. Lewis, whose books continue to sell millions of copies and whose movies have sold more than a billion dollars in movie tickets, lived most of his life in a fairly pervasive terror of financial ruin. But somehow he knew how to respond, for even in the light of his pervasive financial fears, he urges us to increase those fears all the more by giving. If our charities, he said, do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. Lewis's secretary is a friend of mine. He's in his 70s and lives in Oxford. And when I go and visit, Walter tells me that Lewis's motto was, when in doubt, give more. He answered 50,000 letters in his lifetime. He spent two hours a day pushing pen across paper. He would often complain to his correspondents 
There it is, the cream of the morning gone, and I haven't gotten to any of my real work. He would beg his friends not to write him during the holidays because the mails swamped him. He said, to me, the ideal life is never having to fear the postman's knock. And yet, he told Walter, when in doubt, answer the letter. Give more. He prompts us to increase our own insecurity. But why? I believe Lewis urges us to an unsettled approach for the same reason that Christ himself promises us trouble, in order that we can more fully depend on God. Now, we usually react to such fears in one of three ways. We shrivel up into a small ball of paralyzed despair. We turn into ourselves and resolve to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. Or we throw in the towel and throw up our hands and call to a power greater than our own to save us. It seems to me, though only one of these three options legitimately offers itself to us as Christians. For we dare not despair. Certainly we mourn, but not, St. Paul exhorts us, as those who have no hope. For a believer in Christ, ultimate despair offers us no passable road. So that leaves us with a choice either of doing it ourselves or of calling out to someone greater than us. And if I read the scriptures aright, we cannot ultimately correct our own (coughs) sinful behavior, at least of all not effectively. The American can-do and macho, manly, Emersonian self-reliance provides us with a false path. Ultimately, we cannot do enough to save ourselves from this age in which we live, to keep all the wolves from all the doors. Even if we manage to do so for a time, the Bible promises us again and again that our life is but a vapor and our days flee away like the grass. We dare not shrivel up, therefore, and we cannot man up. And so we are left with only one option as we face the manifold uncertainties of the age in which we live. We must reach up to heaven. I assume you have followed me far enough to agree that in this insecure world we will have trouble and that we cannot undo it all ourselves. Yes? Good. Because this is where we start to find some hope beyond the gloomy spell that I have just cast over you. And hope, in a word, is heaven. Let me ask you a question. If I were to ask you to compare the length of your life to, say, the length of the Roman Empire or the Great Pyramids, which seems by far the shorter to you? Your own life? Yes. And so it seems to me, too. But therein lies our problem. For make no mistake... If all the promises of the Bible prove true, then these monuments and civilizations will have long since turned to dust before we have even begun to explore the very shorelines of heaven. We are eternal. We shall live forever. Forever. The psalmist says that the life of a man is threescore years and ten of this earthly life, 
But if the scriptures are true, we have millions and millions more years stretching out before us into eternity past our wildest imaginings. This life, which seems to drag on longer and longer in direct proportion to the size of whatever particularly loathsome task faces us tomorrow, and I have 70 freshman essays to grade, (laughs) pray for me. This life seems so long, but it's the sliver of a fingernail. It's the tiny light of the smallest moon. It's gone like that. It seems as if it will drag on, but comparatively it will have passed us by like a flash in the merest wink of an eye. And heaven demands, depends entirely on what we do with the grace of God in this, our briefest life. With his typical clarity, Lewis says to one correspondent, Think of yourself just as a seed patiently waiting in the earth, waiting to come up a flower in the gardener's good time, up into the real world, into the real waking. I suppose that our whole present life, looked back on from there, will seem only a drowsy half-waking. We are here in the land of dreams, but cockcrow is coming. It is nearer now than when I began this letter. Heaven is closer to you now than when you woke up this morning. It's closer than when you got in the car. It's closer than when I began to preach. It's coming, and soon. Heaven and our place in it directly depends upon what we do with the loving kindness of God in our own life and in the lives of those that he puts into our paths. Not for nothing do the scriptures press upon us over and over the eternal importance of this present moment. Today, if you hear his voice, today is the day of salvation. Encourage one another daily so long as it is called today. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King calls this the fierce urgency of now. The fierce urgency of now. Now, C.S. Lewis states, is the moment where time meets eternity. Right now matters more than anything else ever in the history of the world. For in it, in right now, we find the only moment we will ever have. Not an hour hence, not after service, not after lunch, not after our naps, not after the Texans win the Super Bowl. (laughs) Now, need I press upon you the uncertainty of life and how quickly it ends for some of us? Need I remind those of you who have hair the color of my own? There were more last service. (laughs) Need I remind you that we have more days, some of us, behind us than in front of us. We shall always, only, ever have right now. And heaven depends on how we live that moment. C.S. Lewis points out that we have brought into an almost hellish falsehood, we have brought in an almost hellish falsehood about the apparently inconsequential nature of the everyday, 
claiming that we have bought into a lie by not wanting nearly enough from our brief lives that vanish like vapors. Oh, it doesn't really matter that much what I do today. It's just another ordinary day of routine. No. Lewis says, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the gospel, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine a holiday at sea. Here then is the tension. We have trouble, we are eternal, and we need to ask for more. Lewis elsewhere urges us to pitch our demands heaven high, and so should we. Songwriter and producer Charlie Peacock says, I want to live like heaven is a real place. Do we live as if heaven is real? Does God really offer us infinite joy and everything we could ever want truly? What might our lives look like if we lived, really and truly lived, in light of eternity? And how might this heaven-centered life we live here make us let our light so shine that others will see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven? If we did so, I believe that two benefits will come from living this troubled, insecure life in the very real hope of heaven. First, others will surely see. And please, I beg you, never forget that people are drowning all around you, looking for just that hope that lies within you. They need to know the love of God, and you have it. They need to see from you that kindness that leads people to repentance. They need proof that faith and hope and love can truly come and find them wherever they are. And you know who I'm talking about, don't you? The bitter, the downtrodden, the cynical, and yes, even the ones who annoy you the most. Those are the ones that I'm speaking of the ones that you may be picturing in your head right now, who clearly have no hope of heaven invading their daily lives. The ones who ask, how can a loving God allow this to happen? They need you to say, did you wake up this morning? Were your eyes working? How can an evil God allow a morning like this? How can an evil God allow chocolate milkshakes? <laughs> How can an evil God allow the countless breaths that we take or the smell of jasmine in the spring? You know that two-week period where you walk by and you look around for the jasmine that has bloomed. How can an evil God allow all the manifold good that he allows in this world? They need you to turn those questions around and to show them in a real way what the love of God and the hope of heaven looks like in a very ordinary and broken life. Glory shining through the cracks in your soul. Paul in 2 Corinthians says, Your grace is sufficient for me, for your power is made perfect in weakness. 
God's power, the hope of heaven, is made perfect through your weakness. I'm a man. This doesn't fit my paradigm. I'm an American. We don't celebrate weakness here. We blow things up. (laughs) His power, his heaven, hints of glory made perfect in your weakness. And there are people all around who feel equally weak but are not earthen vessels holding God's glory. They're just earthen vessels cracked and leaking. And they need you to point them to the source, to the waterfall, to fill them up again as they leak out and to show them your own imperfections and God's glory cleaning cleaning you of them again and again and again. These are the ones that need us to turn their gaze upwards, to lift their eyes and to lift up their hearts. They need to see Christ in us, the hope of glory. But not only that, living lives in the hope of heaven, taking heart because Christ has overcome this world, living cheerfully even as we see insecurity surrounding us will, quite frankly, suit us to heaven once we get there. The Westminster Confession of Faith tells us that our chief duty is to love God and to enjoy Him forever. I've always found that verb, enjoy, very curious. Now, let me ask you something. Do you honestly expect that somehow when you get to heaven, you will magically have transplanted into you an enjoyment of God? Or might that enjoyment need to start now and begin by, taking, by us taking heart, by remaining cheerful because he has overcome the world and death and the grave? What makes us think that we shall ever enjoy the presence of the living God if we do not deliberately seek out and enjoy that presence right now? Shall we enjoy heaven if we do not enjoy time alone with Christ and time spent with his body now? I can't see how. Taking heart, maintaining cheerfulness, living in the light of the resurrection and all that new life might imply, this will make heaven seem like home when we finally get there. And I'm not sure that anything else ever will. Now, before I close, let me counter a possible objection and offer Lewis's answer to those who warn us that if we become too heavenly-minded, we shall do no earthly good. There are even songs about that. But Lewis says, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next world. The apostles themselves, who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. Let us, too, have our minds occupied with our heavenly home and how to get ourselves and our loved ones and our neighbors and, yes, even our enemies and our irritants, how to get them to heaven as well. The writer of Hebrews reminds us that, like Abraham, we are looking to the city that has true foundations, whose designer and builder is God. 
and that city has no sun nor moon, for Christ himself will be our light there. Does the thought of heaven make your heart pound even just a little? If so, then you can agree with Lewis and live a life of cheerful insecurity. Not irresponsibly, mind you. Not heedless to our own responsibilities. But cheerfully, considering the lilies of the field and the birds of the air. Our God will supply all our needs according to his riches and glory. That glory, heaven, is our home, is our birthright. And he shall come late or soon to take us there. Let me end with two of the most famous quotes from C.S. Lewis, words which I hope will inspire you, as they do me, to live lives of cheerful insecurity, to have trouble and to take heart to shine like stars of the heaven. The first passage is from Lewis's most famous sermon, The Weight of Glory. Meanwhile, the cross comes before the crown and tomorrow is a Monday morning. A cleft has opened in the pitiless walls of the world and we are invited to follow our great captain inside. The following him is, of course, the essential point. That being so... It may be asked what practical use there is in the speculations which I have been indulging. I can think of at least one such use. It may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. It is hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply of that of his neighbor. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid on my back a load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you may talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all love, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Natures, cultures, nations, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, exploit, immortal horrors, or everlasting splendors. Taking heart in a troubled world, living lives of cheerful insecurity, giving an answer with gentleness and respect for the hope that lies within us, this is what the present and future reality of heaven can do for us. And now, let us give the great lion Aslan from the Chronicles of Narnia the last word. 
you might remember that scene from the end of the voyage of the Don Treader boy, I hope you didn't watch the movie, where the lamb prepares them breakfast. It's meant to remind us of that scene in John after the resurrection where Jesus is cooking the fish. And it's also meant to remind us of the lamb on the throne that we heard about in today's reading. The lamb turns into a lion and as he prepares to send the children from Aslan's country, from heaven, back into their own country, much as we will face tomorrow our own Monday morning, Lucy asks him this question. Oh, Aslan, said Lucy, will you tell us how to get into our country from your world? I'm sorry, will you tell us how to get into your country from our world? I shall be telling you all the time, said Aslan. But I will not tell you how long or short the way will be, only that it lies across a river. But do not fear that, for I am the great bridge builder. The bridge to heaven is his own body, born and broken for us. He has gone on to prepare a place for us, and he has promised to come back soon and to claim us. And until he does, let us love well this lost and broken world. Let us bind up the wounds and let us keep a weather eye to the sky. Let us take heart. Let us make a virtue of good cheer, longing for that great and glorious day as we hope for heaven itself to come down upon us and to carry us home. Amen. Amen.